This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 30. This is Writing Excuses, First Page Fundamentals, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Don Juan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. So this week, we're going to do a deep dive into an example here. And we're talking about, again, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, so to start, Mary Robinette, would you mind reading the first paragraph for us all so we're all on the same page, as it were? The Haunting of Hill House. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright. Bricks met neatly. Floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. This really is one of my all-time favorite openings of a novel in the English language. I think it does so many things right. This is, first off, a great example of how you use voice to establish what your book is. Um, and, you know, one thing that we, I think, don't really talk about enough when it comes to voice is the musicality, the poetry of what she has done here. There's such an elegant rhythm to it that Mary Robinette brought out so so wonderfully there that it flows in this way that you get into this sort of lulled into this particular state of mind by it. And you have this dreamlike quality, which, again, is reflected by this idea that Larks and Katie did also dream, right? Um, and that intention with this idea of conditions of absolute reality and that connecting that again to sanity, right? So all of these elements are immediately put on the page of we're in this sort of hypnagogic dreamlike state. We're dealing with concepts of, of mental illness and madness. And then we're introduced to the main character of the book. And that main character is the house itself. One of the things that I, I find particularly compelling about this example is there, there are kind of two sort of ways of starting a, a novel. There's uh, one that is um, sort of action-driven, which is what we m- usually focus on. And then there are voice-driven ones, which are this this thing where you, you take an idea and the, the narrator ruminates on it. Um, and it's something that is important. So there's something within this uh, this first paragraph that is also giving you a sense of of the urgency, the the thing that is important, the thing that is at stake here. You know that there is this this house that's so you know sense the door is sensibly shut. 
um, that it's it's upright and it's holding darkness within. It's it's giving you a sense of oh, there's something there's something terrible that is coming, but it never names what that terrible is. It's it's just making you this promise through the, through what is important to the character and the character is the house. It's such a quiet way to start. I mean, it's such a description of just a house and then, you know, some, some stuff about, you know, dreams and sanity, right? But really fundamentally, the core of this paragraph is describing the fact that it's a well-built, well-put-together house that, that is what it is. Um, it stood for a long time. It's probably going to keep standing for more. But then you end on that final turn, which is such like a delightful moment for me, which is whatever walked there walked alone. And it's just this way of slipping the knife in right at the end of all of that lovely description, all that sort of smooth, beautiful, rhythmic description that the menace that's been building over the course of this paragraph sort of culminates in this moment of there's going to be that moment of surprise. There's going to be that dark twist to this book. And again, that reflects the structure of the book that reflects what Shirley Jackson is doing over the course of this story of giving you characters, giving them this experience and writing in this very elevated way. But still, it's going to have that bite. There's still going to be that moment when the character twists and something is not right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to, since we are doing a deep dive on this, I, I actually want want you the listener to to hop over to uh to the writing excuses webpage and and look at the first paragraph which which we will have in the liner notes the reason i want you to look at it is i want you to look at how she has structured this so as a narrator one of the things that i look at is punctuation she is placing those commas, those periods, the semicolon. She's placing those very deliberately to provoke pauses. And those pauses draw a line underneath things that are important. So where are the pauses that occur in this? You know, under conditions of absolute reality, we have a semicolon. Uh, the the Larks and Katie Dids are supposed by some to dream. That there's this 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 thing that's like, some people think this, some people don't. You're going to have to make your own decisions is is what she's doing right there. Hill House, not sane. Again, she sets that apart with those commas. And then we get to holding darkness within that semicolon again to just kind of punctuate that. And then to really draw a line under the, 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 the what the thrust of this entire thing is. It's the very last uh, clause of that opening thing of that opening paragraph walked alone which is set apart with the comma and then the period and then the paragraph break you step back slightly before that and whatever walked there that's also set apart and she's drawing attention to it very consciously i suspect with the way she is imagining the rhythmic quality of this language. So when we're talking about voice, this is one of the things that you can be doing. And I'm not saying your your writing must have a bajillion commas and, and semicolons. What I'm saying is use them consciously. Don't think about them so much grammatically. Gram the, the grammar exists to describe and codify uh, the the ways that we naturally group language. What you're thinking about is, where am I grouping my thoughts? What is important? What is the thing that I want to set apart so the reader can see it? And and what are the things that I want to draw a line under? The uh, 
the very first line recontextualizes what we are what we are being told several times as it unfolds and I, most people don't read this slowly but no live organism okay no live organism what am i being told no live organism can continue that's pretty bleak for long okay that's less bleak to exist sanely and the word sanely has suddenly recontextualized everything else it's not existential it's sanity under conditions of absolute reality as these little things reveal that sentence drags me screaming into the the gothic horror of haunting of hill house and uh and I'll be honest have not read the full book um exploring this first line convinces me that I might not like that ride <laughs> but, but the poetry with which that very first line is constructed is absolutely beautiful and that's the sort of promise that I like to be made uh I like to be the recipient of early in a book I am really loving the uh just a little clause not sane mm. I mean it's it's the so much of this is is beautiful um but that one in particular not only the suggestion that a house can have or not have sanity which is which is fascinating by itself and which does set up like dong wan said the the idea that the house is the character uh but compared to that first sentence and and I like Howard have never actually read this and so I'm coming in cold and I would love to to know if I'm wrong about this, but he's basically saying uh, that in order to have sanity, you have to escape reality sometimes. And the fact that the house is not sane implies then that maybe it does exist under conditions of absolute reality, that what we're about to see is not a dream. It's actually real things that are happening, which takes away some of our safety net and makes this not only kind of unexpected, but also more dangerous. I, I'm obsessed with that not saying every time I hit that line, like a whole theater audience in my head leaps to its feet and starts cheering. Like I, every time I hit that moment, I'm just like, this, this is not saying, how did you do this? How did you make me feel this unsettled by that tiny, a positive, like that tiny comma framed phrase there. But anyways, uh, let's uh, let's. Hey, writers, are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique, which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. 
And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Give the reader a, or a listener a, a moment of, of feeling slightly safer. We'll, we'll talk about the book of the week. We'll, we'll take you away from Hill House just for for a moment, uh, and and talk about our book of the week, uh, which is prep for next week, and uh, that's Moby Dick. You're going to tell us a little bit about that, right, Don Juan? Yeah. So we're going to talk about the opening page of Moby Dick, probably one of the most famous lines, opening sentences in English literature. But you know, when I mentioned Moby Dick by Herman Melville, I can sort of in my brain, hear a large person in the audience groaning at the idea that they have to read this, you know, ponderous, weighty novel. And I felt that way for a long time until I read it sort of in my mid to late 20s. I I finally sat down. I was like, fine, I'm going to read this thing. Everyone talks about it. And I was completely surprised by the book that I actually found, that it wasn't this dry tome. It's funny and it's deeply strange. There's like whole chapters that are just talking about whale biology and then long descriptions of like what whaling actually is and it's dark and I I cannot overstate how strange of a book this is it doesn't feel like anything else I've ever read Um, and it's so it's such an interesting examination of the human experience of what it is to be in the world um, and and figure out how how to survive within it um, under these conditions Um, I I, I love this book Um, it's not going to be for everybody but I promise it's not the book that you're English class taught you that it was going to be. So uh, the book that my English class taught me was a uh, like 50 page Cliff's Notes of Moby Dick. And (laughs) that does not do that book justice. It absolutely does not. You're not supposed to admit that out loud. Um, so that is uh, Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Uh, So go ahead and read that for next week. And, um, Meanwhile, uh, we are going to continue talking about this haunting of Hill House because there there are other things that it is setting up in here um, besides just, oh, this really, really good, juicy, voicey thing. The thing I want to draw everyone's attention to is the, the punctuation is masterful. And I think we focused on that for a long time for a good reason. But the, the effect of that on the reader, I think, is establishing an iron grip 
over your brain in this moment. She establishes an enormous amount of authority of, I am telling this story to you and I'm going to tell it my way. It's going to be distinct and unusual, but also she just establishes this complete authority. And it's one of the things you need to do to the reader in your opening page is tell them, I'm a good writer. You want to spend time here because I'm good at this, right? And I think she does that in this way by manipulating the rhythm, by manipulating the punctuation, by doing unexpected and sort of things that you're quote unquote not supposed to do. Um, she breaks some rules, but she does it in a way that's very masterful. So, you know, I think one of the lessons you can take here is to aim for this kind of authority, which isn't necessarily meaning like you break the rules in the same way that she does, but find a way to be as compelling and convincing of your mastery of language and your mastery of scene and setting and all those things that as she does here. It, it strikes me, Dong Wan, and, and tell me if I'm wrong about the book as a whole, but this opening paragraph is using a lot of the same tools and playing with a lot of the same toys as Lovecraft. Uh, that first sentence in particular is incredibly Lovecraftian, but in a much more sophisticated way than he mm-hmm. ever was. Um, you know, just just the way that it is kind of combining these concepts of supernatural and science directly uh phrases like no live organism and absolute reality and then at the same time this is about a house that's not sane and katie did's the dream uh it's a, a really sophisticated combination of those very specific tools that lovecraft used to establish the the tone and the the atmosphere I think there's some, yeah, I think there's a similar preoccupation with sort of this concept of insanity in the very specific way that we don't really talk about it this way anymore for probably very good reasons. Um, But she also has flipped it on its head in so many ways Uh because, you know, instead of viewing the cosmic horror that breaks your brain, the thing that breaks your brain is absolute reality. It's having to be present with no ability to dream, no ability to escape sort of modernity and all of its like groundedness um, and, and, the concreteness of this house. And so I kind of love the way that she has inverted that in this way and, and the, how the language just pushes you sp- immediately into that space. And I think is in conversation with it, but I think in a way that says, Lovecraft, you wish you could do this, right? Yeah, you right, wish exactly. you could dream yeah, yeah. To, to, to reach this level. So, yeah. Yeah. In, in reading and rereading and I printed it out so I can have it in front of me as we're having this discussion I realized that the thing that is not stated explicitly per se, but which is inextricably related to us is that Hill House is a living organism. Yeah. And, uh, well, wow, that's a, that's a promise that I bet gets fulfilled later in the book. Mm-hmm. So, this this thing that you just noted, um, this is a thing that I adore when an author does when they demonstrate through all of the contextual clues that that something is alive. She's not being coy about the fact that Hill House is a living organism. She's 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 spending a great deal of time letting us know that it's a living organism. Um, 
in someone else's hands, that discovery would come later. That that would be the, I, I don't want them to know this, but, you know, the, the big reveal is going to be that the house is alive and the whole thing is from the house's point of view. And that's, that's, that's not, she, she's right up front. This is a living organism and it is not sane. And you're going to spend the next however many pages inhabiting that, literally and metaphorically. And this is, you know, we've talked about getting the reader to to trust you at the beginning, and these are these are all things that that she is doing with very deliberate choices. She's not being coy about the the central thing, you know, the 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 uh, the, the interesting gee whiz factor, uh, which is that the house is alive. Um, yeah, you can and- absolutely do that. You know, uh, there there are plenty of examples of being coy with the the central uh, sixth sense. You know, um, but uh, but how interesting it is when you go in and it causes it causes all of the stakes to shift and become so much more immediate because you have that connection with the character. To me, it's always such a flex when a writer can start and tell you, "Here's what the story is." And then proceed to take you through the story. Yeah. And but when they've told you up front, here's what's going to happen. I, I just love that because it, it's setting expectations and then fulfilling them. And as a reader, for me, one of the most satisfying things is being told, "I'm going to tell you a good story. Here's what the story is." And then they tell me the story, and I was like, "Yep, that was great. Thank you for that. Let's do it again sometime." <laughs> yeah, because because the other thing that that happens is uh, when, when they do this is. This is what the story is, and it's not going to go down the way you think it is. Yeah, well, and she is she is telling us that right off the bat. You know, she's establishing expectations, but also she is subverting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine any haunted house, and it is going to be dark and creaky and full of, you know, there there will be weird breezes coming through because the walls don't meet. No, this house, the walls continued upright. The bricks met neatly. Floors were firm. Doors were sensibly shut. Um, this is this is not the kind of haunted house we are accustomed to. And that by itself makes it more menacing. In the same way as like the introduction to Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. He is clean. He's well-shaven. He's... Not the creepy monster we thought. Neither is this house. And yet there is still some menace to it. The fact that the doors have been shut is sensible, which is just implying this menace at the corners of the story in a house that looks completely harmless. Yeah. So we are going to uh, give you some homework. Um, I'm actually going to give you two pieces of homework or three. One is Moby Dick. Uh, the other is there's an adjacent story that I want you to read. It's called Open House on Haunted Hill by John Wiswell. It's uh, nominated for the Nebula. I, I think I think it's nominated for all of the awards this year. Um, it, it's fantastic. And it's basically, what happens if you go to uh, an open house at a place like Hill House? Um, it's fantastic. Uh, and then the last piece of homework that I have is is your actual homework, is that I want you to write an introduction to your book that's, uh, that is a, a, a voice-driven opening. So this is going to be something that is you're just doing description. There's, there's no action. There's no dialogue. It's not about a person doing a thing. 
it's about a thing that matters deeply to the fundamental core of the story and that you're just going to take some time and describe it and inhabit that and think about tone and setting and stakes and bring us all of those things that you would normally bring us through action through your descriptive text. So, this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dong Wan Song, Mary Robinette Kowal, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. The episode was brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash writing excuses. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.